not with Lowry's. You love everything that's crossing, Lowry's. No, 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 no. That's crossing the line. Lowry's. Can't have soy sauce and Lowry's. Dude, I'd have a heart attack right there. <laughs> you didn't say you wouldn't like He's it. He's skipping Sinoatrial things. What is it called? Sinoatrial mm-hmm. SA node? I don't know. It's an electrolytes. Oh. Don't look at me like that. Welcome back, folks. This is Elliot with the Poor Pearls Almanac here with Andy's face. Randy. This no, is Randy. Randy's not here. You don't know Randy. I am Randy. No, you We're don't. all Randy. You don't know Randy. You feeling Randy? Randy's my buddy. Anyway, we're here with another episode of this Whacked Out podcast, which you can find on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Patreon as well if you're enjoying what we're doing over here and you'd like to help us cover some of the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any traditional content focused on the specific goals of the podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that. Knowledge is for everyone. But we have started a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about things from an intersectional lens, but also from the context of this podcast. Societal collapse and reconstruction and things like that. Radioactive pigs, all sorts of garbage. If you're interested and you're willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption. So that's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. So thanks for your support. You guys are amazing. And even the folks who have donated one time, uh, we appreciate it. We get it. We've been there. We poor as fuck. Yeah, I don't have. I was just talking about that the other day. How like it was somebody's birthday on Facebook and they had a charity like donation and I just... I didn't have the funds to like donate, and I felt I like, am really, a charity <laughs> really bad. And I was like, "Yeah, I need I need a charity," but it wasn't my birthday, so fuck me, and I'm sorry, everybody. You could have given them like a couple rounds of forty cal. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's a niche market that would really appreciate that. It's like a Mad Max future where like bullets are money or something. I mean, weird. bullets are money. You know what they cost? Yeah, they're, they're a better investment. Pretty than pricey the stock now. Market. Anybody need forty cal? Come and find me. I don't need it. While we do enjoy making this content and listening to Elliot banter about ammo, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each and every episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go fund Elliot's bullet problem and check us out on Patreon. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there, and if you reach out to us, we have a listener Discord where we talk about all the shit we talk about in the podcast in a Discord. So... Go check it out. And as always, if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content, or at the very least, the beginning of this miniseries, which frames up these conversations. Right. So this miniseries has been focused on agriculture from a local perspective. We started the series uh, discussing what is permaculture and what are its shortfalls took some of the time to look at modern examples of urban agriculture and what it means to develop new systems that are based on historical conditions and self-determination, and then looked back towards some historical examples of agriculture as it meant for indigenous people across the globe. This episode is a bit of an extension of these two frameworks in which we will be looking at exactly what systemic erasure looks like within the context of indigenous people and the narratives that surrounds that process of erasure. 
Understanding how and why these erasures happen helps inform us in how we can come to terms with these massive problems of colonialism, erasure, and genocide so that we can move forward in a productive way. In this episode, we're looking at the history of the Anishinaabe tribe, an encompassing term which ties together culturally related indigenous peoples of the upper Midwest region, ranging from Minnesota and Canada through the Great Lakes region of the Ojibwe tribe. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different terms in loosely associated tribes from this region. Anishinaabe is essentially a, a wide-ranging uh, regional term that ties the fact that all these cultures are usually closely related. When we decided that we want to take a look at some of their history, it was really important to think about where their their traditional cultural heritage and then what uh, the effects of colonialism short term and long term on those and as well as the um, indigenous ecology of these regions. So in this conversation, we're going to center our conversation specifically on the food aspect of the Anishinaabe, especially how they relate to the foods they consume. Maintaining the connection between story and seed to provide healthy food, spiritual sustenance, and sustainable harvests are very much present in Anishinaabe communities for whom specifically the wild rice or manumen is a life and culture sustaining food. Manumen figures centrally in the story of the Anishinaabe people's migration from the Atlantic coastline to the Great Lakes region or Anishinaabe Aki, the land of the people. The Anishinaabe received a prophecy more than 500 years ago telling them to follow a migis, or a cowrie shell, that would appear in the sky ahead of them until they reached a place where food grows on the water. Upon seeing Manumen growing on the lakes and rivers around the Great Lakes when their migration led them there in the mid-1500s, the Anishinaabe knew that they had found their home. Manumen, recognized as a gift from the creator and a marker of home, became a staple food for the Anishinaabe due to its abundance, storability, and nutritional richness. Because of its centrality in origin stories, identity, and survival, managing wild rice in its natural state is a moral obligation, as well as a treaty right. Manumen is also a sacred food intertwined in countless ways with the Ojibwe spiritual practices, kinship relations, economies, gender roles, history, place, and contemporary existence. It is no understatement, then, to view Manumen as one of the quintessential elements of being Ojibwe. The Anishinaabe scholar-poet Kimberly Blazer connects the Manumen harvest and the continuation of the Anishinaabe people to the very process of storytelling, writing that, quote, rice kernels fall back upon the fall waters, sink slowly again to the soft silt. Stories, too, must seek fruitful grounds, settle, arise again in new voice. We only continue by the grace of these spirit acts. Somewhere there is intersection between the motion of stories, the motion of life, and the mobile centers of meaning. End quote. For Blazer, both storytelling and the Manuman harvest are spiritual acts that intersect in the creation of meaning that enables a people to live and to thrive across seasons and generations in the full knowledge of who they are and what feeds them. And the practice of sharing rising stories reminds both tellers and listeners of the kernel of who they are as a people. Manumen thus feeds the Anishinaabe by nourishing not only their bodies, but also spirits, economies, and sovereignties. Yeah, she's a really good writer. Yeah. 
It's a good quote. Yeah, and it speaks to that storytelling ability. The, yeah, <laughs> that's well, great. that dynamicness of their relationship with food, which I think is what a lot of what this whole series is really pointed to is mm-hmm. that food is much more than food, and I think we all understand that in some level. Right, there's it speaks that, to history. Right, there's that root to culture, your roots, where you come from tradition all of those things are steeped in you know the foods that we call comfort foods and the things that you know remind us of home when we might not be there you know what yeah. i mean and economy in a lot of ways or at least our economy try to tear that from us by focusing instead on foods that are cheap and accessible and storable instead of the foods that might speak to this the labor of living in a sense and and we see that a little bit in the attempted commodification of Manumen. So for approximately 250 years, since the British naturalists sought to commercialize the production of wild rice to feed colonists across the British Empire, Manumen and Anashina Beg communities have faced the threat of those who want to separate the seed from the story. This threat continues today in the production of paddy-grown wild rice and in ongoing agribusiness attempts to genetically modify, patent, and control wild rice. These separations, which are part and parcel of ongoing processes of colonization, limit native access to land and resources, and also challenge indigenous economies and thus food security and sovereignty. The wild rice narratives examined here are but a few of the many, many stories of Manumen that Anishinaabeg tell. They elucidate the close historical, spiritual, and ecological and material relationships between both the Anishinaabe communities and Manumen and demonstrate the importance to Anishinaabe self-determination of maintaining such connection with their food. So for our listeners, Manumen is the Anishinaabe word for rice, but it also means so much more than rice. It's like it almost has a spirit in itself. It, yeah, and it's multifaceted. Rice isn't just a thing you eat. It's a part of your history. It's a part of the stories. There's layers to what rice is in the right. same way a cemetery isn't just a place where you put bodies. Right. There's a lot of things that are tied to that that object. Right. So it's something that gives them life. It's something that gives them a link to the land that they live in. And it's something that... Um, you know, they rely on year in and year out to sustain them, sustain yeah. their, their culture and their history and, and all of it. Yeah, and it ties them to their ancestors. Cool. So understanding Anishinaabe wild rice narrative speaks to the particular kind of indigenous knowledge that is lost in Western understanding of these foods. Much written Anishinaabe botanical information is contained in colonized texts that are alien to the Anishinaabe. These botanical texts serve the interests of colonizers and the processes of systemic racism and oppression, or they present information according to the philosophies, cosmologies, and knowledge-keeping systems of the colonizers. To decolonize such texts, or to produce new decolonized texts, involves understanding how culture maintains knowledge. We are not just talking about knowledge, we are talking about Anishinaabe Gikin Da'asalon, our specific knowledge, unique to the Anishinaabe people, which includes not just information, but also the synthesis of our personal teachings, end quote. Connecting seed and story is part of the process of decolonization, the ultimate goal of which is to ensure that botanical Gikinda Asawan is useful to Anishinaabe communities. And again, that 
that big word gikindasawan is a Anishinaabe word for not just the knowledge of the rice, but it's like their cultural knowledge and their history that is included with passing along that knowledge. Yeah. It's all knowledge. It's all encompassing. Yeah, knowledge word. is experiential. Right. In um, a life experience that's yeah. being passed on. And the food, or in this case, the manumen is part of that experiential process and trying to pull the, the manumen out of that experiential relationship makes it lesser than what it is with it and it shouldn't exist without it in in many ways it's part of that western philosophy of breaking something down into its simplest part in order to understand it and it strips away what makes it so important and so connected to these peoples and what we're going to talk about that in a moment both the process itself and the um the the colonization aspects of it so in terms of actually doing the manumen harvest, there's a multifaceted ritual that contains various and complex ecological, spiritual, and legal knowledge and skills. Through the 1930s, the process began when women would bind stalks of rice together for about 10 days before the rice field fully ripened, a practice that has had many purposes from both marking rice territory to allowing the rice to ripen uniformly. This procedure, along with an elected ricing committee that ensured an ecologically sound and organized harvest, constituted what Brenda Child calls, in quote, an indigenous legal system to protect wild rice in its unique ecosystem, end quote. While the women's binding procedure ended by the 1940s, other elements of hand harvesting continue today in many communities. Once a member of the tribal government or a committee or an elder, sometimes called a rice chief, declared the manumen ripe and ready for harvest, ricers would make an offering of asema, uh, which is tobacco, before taking to the water. Partners move through the rice beds in a boat with one person pulling it forward while the other uses cedar ricing sticks to knock the ripe kernels into the boat. The ricers allow some kernels to fall into the lake bed to reseed for the next year. Although I will note that uh, a lot of research has shown that some of these rice kernels can last up to 30 years and possibly longer before they sprout, depending on conditions. So you're essentially creating an incredible seed bank by continuously feeding into those um, into that seed bank. Right. And does flooding and all of that just spread that rice further, which is why these lakes are scattered yeah. with... And that's why, yeah, and that's why if they dry out, it's not that big of a deal because they'll usually stay dormant until those lakes or ponds start filling up again. Mm. Uh, that doesn't mean you should do it, but you know they're they're much more resilient than you might think. The kernels are briefly dried on mats and then parched and stirred with a canoe paddle in a kettle over a wood fire, drying and toasting them. The twisting pressure of feet removes the seed from the hull, and that's called dancing or jigging the rice. Winnowing, which is when the rice is tossed in a winnowing tray into the air, helps remove the shaft. Learning how to complete these steps and how to act as stewards of the ecosystem in which Manuman grows requires that Ginkentasawan be shared from generation to generation. In this sense, rice is full of remembered places and relatives. Here, that knowledge about the land intertwines with both family memories and interpersonal connections. Places and relatives are woven together so closely that particular lakes and rivers themselves are part of those relationships. Mm. The Nishinabe choose labor-intensive traditional methods because dancing on the rice, again, in quote from Brenda Child, 
lets us stay close to the food, end quote, and fanning it, end quote, makes you realize how important wind is in the process of making food, end quote. Ricing is, in fact, in this way, a dynamic, social, and storytelling occasion. While Anishinaabe literary practices maintain and support the connection between story and seed, colonized texts do the opposite. That is, they separate Manuman from Anishinaabe systems of knowledge, to the detriment of both the colonizers and the indigenous people. This history of cultural separation perhaps begins in the late 1760s at the end of the, in quote, Little Ice Age that preceded the Industrial Revolution, a time when British nationalists investigated the potential for wild rice to be adapted for cultivation and used throughout the British Empire, particularly in England and other areas that were quite cold. European observers had assumed that the Indians only harvested the manumen, but did nothing to control or develop the plant, which reproduced as independently and as copiously as a weed. They recognized that manumen was nutritious and plentiful, but knew very little about its connection to indigenous cultures and clearly did not even begin to understand both the sacred and ceremonial meaning. The colonizers envisioned uprooting and transplanting manumen, theorizing and planning how to change and commercially cultivate wild rice. For example, botanist John Mitchell argued in 1767 that, in quote, once improved for commercial cultivation, wild rice would also provide a unique commodity for imperial trade, one that would not interfere with the mother country's own produce, end quote. In fact, even magazines from this time period encouraged English farmers to create an enlarged variety with a hypertrophied fruit like all of our other domesticated grains. While these naturalists saw themselves as working towards the improvement and adaptation of manumen, they did not understand the basics of its biology and had paid no attention to the details or even the existence of Anishinaabe resource management practices or Gikendasawan. In the 1780s and 90s, Several botanists in England, France, and North America attempted to export manumen and to cultivate it in Europe, but almost completely failed. It became clear that manumen would not go along with their plans to feed the empire. Wild rice remained a uniquely American crop, despite these efforts to remove it from its ecological and cultural grounds. So basically, they tried to, again, separate the story and seed, right? Yeah. And they weren't able to cultivate rice anywhere else because they didn't have that knowledge about what the plant actually is and how it grows and how to harvest it in a way that it would be, you know, beneficial. They assumed because if the climate was similar or if England was less cold, say, than Michigan, that it would, you know, if the temperature is good, that's enough and we can grow like any other rice or Mm -hmm. other grain or whatever. And that that's not really the case. And, you know, the the idea was that we could try to create it similar to all of our other traditionally grown foods and that we selectively breed and try to make it a not I don't want to say monocrop, but like something that could be grown plentifully. And that erased a lot of that understanding of how it grows and the ecology of where it grows. Mm-hmm. So the story of uh, separation continues in the United States in the 19th century. For example, Albert Jenks's 1899 report from the Bureau of American Ethnology, and quote, the wild rice gatherers of the Upper Lakes, a study in American primitive economics, end quote. 
Jenks, a University of Michigan researcher, wrote his study during allotment and its aftermath when Minnesota Anishinaabeg were fighting hard to hold on to their land and resources while the white settlers and resource extraction corporations forcefully and often illegally worked to alienate these nations from their land. Jenks' main thesis is that looking at indigenous wild rice populations can help us understand the ascendance of economics motive in primitive humans, end quote. So, yeah, he was kind of a dick. A little bit. Fuck you, Jenks. Further, he denigrates the Anishinaabe stewardship of Manuman, claiming that, in quote, the Indian, by his use of the wild rice seed, is a great enemy of the plant, for it will be shown that the plant, unless it is artificially sown, is gradually being extinguished in such beds as are continually used, end quote. Jenks also numbers waterfowl among wild rice's enemies. Yet undermining his own statements on the limitations of mythology, Jenks later recounts the Ojibwe story of the trickster Boho, who returns from an unsuccessful hunt to find that a duck, which had sat on the edge of his kettle of boiling water, had left behind a grain that made the best soup he had ever tasted, and which afterward fed him when game was scarce. This trickster not only conveys one way that Manuman came to the people, but also points to the ways in which birds, people, and Manuman function together in a thriving, dynamic ecosystem. Even as he suggests they deplete rice beds, demonstrates that the people harvested carefully, leaving a portion of the Manuman behind to reseed itself. He interprets this stewardship, though, as, in quote, primitive Indians not taking production very seriously, end quote and quotes an agent who devalued the social and ceremonial aspects of ricing, alleging, end quote, they could gather more if they did not spend so much time feasting and dancing every day and night during the time they are here for the purposes of gathering, end quote. Jenks's conclusion, surprisingly, is, end quote, it must be regretted that so nutritious a cereal was a precarious crop and has not, apparently, warranted extensive cultivation. End quote. Even during the Depression era, New Deal programs to commercialize wild rice production not only changed gender patterns in the harvest by moving men into roles previously inhabited by women, but also positioned Anishinaabe people as students who needed to learn from the white U.S. government program administrators how to improve and modernize the Manuman harvest. Prior to the 1930s, women were the primary ricers, a powerful role providing for the well-being of their communities. Despite this, there was a specific economic attack towards these indigenous land stewards. Through the development of confusing marketing projects to conflate domesticated wild rice grown on patties and harvested with combines, that has further altered reservation economies by driving down the price of hand-harvested manumen. Further, projects to map the genome of manumen into patent sterile versions of the plant have raised serious concerns about cross-pollination of wild manumen with GMO rice, threatening the very existence of the Anishinaabe staple. So we can see here that there's multiple ways that colonization continues, despite the fact that you could say we're not taking more land, and I say we as white Americans or uh, non-indigenous Americans. The U.S. government. Yeah, the U.S. government. That, that there's so many things that are still going on that are a direct attack against these people and their, the way they live by cutting them out economically, by threatening the food ways that they have because of things like cross-pollination 
and trying to detangle the relationship that these indigenous tribes had with the foodways around them. Right. Whether that's legal or whatever. Yeah. And we, we can, the days of maybe raiding tribes might be over physically, but psychologically and economically, they're still quite alive and well. Right. And I, I don't, when we talk about these things, I think it's easy to see a meme that says like colonization is still happening, but to understand quite literally what that means right. what is a, much different. Right. So this continuous presence of a rich and varied collection of wild rice stories among Anishinaabe signifies a longstanding legal claim of connection between Manumen and the people. Wild rice stories are not only told alongside the lake and during family gatherings, but also in the courtroom where the Anishinaabe fight for recognition of their rights to their lands and their role as stewards of rice and habitats. Treaties provide Anishinaabe people the right to their rice, not genetically modified organisms that have been built upon the genetic code of the grass. Continuing the harvest maintains not just a way of life, but mino bimaadazawin, the good life in English. Life as it was meant to be is the, basically what the word means. It's a big one. As we continue to build this understanding of the triangulations of these different aspects, a specific term comes to mind. Transmotion, end quote, embodies tribal sovereignty through the imaginative and visionary links of story, tribal memory, and environmental knowledge. Willingness to hear and participate in the stories and experiences, like Rising, that pull people together, end quote. The Ojibwa understand that their relationship to wild rice through stories known to many from childhood. In fact, Anishinaabe storytellers and food activists are often one and the same. Both connect the process of ricing to the telling of ricing stories, speaking often about how stories maintain gikindasolin. As the poet we quoted earlier, Kimberly Blazer, explains, End quote. When I investigate the native seed banks that seek to preserve indigenous varieties of tribal foods like wild rice, I think also of the vast story banks that preserve Anishinaabe beliefs and tradition. Each storytelling is both harvest and reseeding. End quote. Story and action intertwine, and ricing becomes decolonized, and decolonizing knowledge and process, which can never be separated from story. Anishinaabe communities today create and sustain the good life, a healthy life, by fighting to maintain the wildness of wild rice. Working together, writers, activists, ricers, storytellers act as cultural and environmental stewards by engaging in projects that affirm Anishinaabe rights to monument and to community health and self-determination. Programs like Native Harvest, Red Lake Nations Foods, and Net Lake Wild Rice simultaneously work on food access, habitat sustainability, and reinvigorating traditional economies. The Intertribal Agricultural Council hosts an annual Great Lakes Intertribal Food Summit, at which storytellers, elders, researchers, food waste teachers, and chefs can share their knowledge of monument and cook and eat together. Collections of recipes, such as Hyde Erdrich's original local indigenous foods, stories and recipes from the upper Midwest, native harvests, let's cook our foods, and the Dream of Wild Health Farm cookbook. Juxtapose recipes and Dibaa Jamawanan. I got it. And teach how to prepare healthy food meals from monument and other indigenous foods. 
Organizations like White Earth Land Recovery Project fight against genetic modification of monument and biopiracy, which I didn't know was a word. All of these projects and many others tell monument narratives to propagate Gikinda Asoan in order to achieve their goals of food sovereignty and Anishinaabe culture, spiritual, and physical health. Wendy Genius explains that the priority of decolonized Anishinaabe Gikindasawan is, end quote, to revitalize this knowledge within our own lives so that it will be there for our children and grandchildren and their children and grandchildren, end quote. Clearly then, Merilu Awiakta's insistence on the importance of keeping story and seed together rings as true for Monomen as it does for corn. In a time when climate change pipelines and continued experimentation with GMOs and paddy-grown rice continue to threaten Monomen, Anishinaabe people create and convey Gikinda Asawin about Monomen, telling stories that nourish as an act of survivance. Their sense of decolonization means trying to bring their culture back to life. Well, I don't want to say back to life. Um, well, it's trying to keep the spirit of their culture intact and alive without, yeah. without being broken down into pieces. And genuinely. They're, right. It's trying to keep the monument as part of their culture without... Yeah, and this is something the, we talked about. Go ahead. Well, the, again, it comes down to the, the Western idea of like ownership. They don't own this rice, but they, they do own their history and their cultural identity and... You, you shouldn't be able to really take you, you shouldn't be able to take that away no and it, I, I was thinking about the satayama farms in japan and you know what their solution to the, save the satayama has been to make public parks where people do the things to maintain the landscape but it's not really working it's working a little bit but not as much as it should because they're just going through the motions they're not invested in it culturally right it's like a cheap it's a cheap copy it's, yeah. a, it's a representation or a replica yeah and in this sense they're they're really challenging that by genuinely revitalizing these practices knowledges and food ways uh for example in 2003 the there was a newly formed masters of indigenous knowledge and philosophy program of the seven generations education institute which is nestled between Kauchiking. First Nation Reserve in Fort Francis, Ontario, on Agency One land, which began developing Biskabiang approaches to research that attempt to decolonize the Anishinaabeg in their knowledge. The Biskabiang approach to research was developed in courses for the Masters of Indigenous Knowledge and Philosophy program when students and instructors asked Anishinaabe elders to describe in Ojibwe certain concepts associated with how an Anishinaabe person learns within the Anishinaabe culture. The Anishinaabe academics involved in this project helped the students correlate these Anishinaabe cultural concepts with those of traditional academia. This project resulted in a list of terms in the Ojibwe language describing the Anishinaabe way of being, to be used by those conducting research on Anishinaabe Gikendasawan. Those following Biska Biang approaches to research use these research terms. In the context of this methodology, the word Biska Biang means returning to ourselves. Laura Horton, director of the post-secondary education program at Seven Generations, describes Biska Biang research as a process through which Anishinaabe researchers evaluate how they personally have been affected by colonization and rid themselves of the emotional and psychological baggage they carry from this process and then return to their ancestral traditions. 
as far as the survival of Anishinaabe people and culture is concerned, this is the most crucial part of Biskaabiang research methodologies. Not only does this approach to research give Anishinaabe academics and communities a common ground on which to begin talking about research, it also gives all of us a means of coming to terms with the research of imperialism into our heads. So I think this is really important in how we try to understand what it means to push for decolonization and what that actually looks like in practice. Because it's one thing to say, like, we need to decolonize this and that and the other thing. But what does that really mean? And how do we create an infrastructure that supports it in a way that isn't just individuals trying to do this on their own? Because I feel like that's something that if you're on the internet in whatever, left book or Instagram, there's a lot of like decolonize and do your own research mentalities. But that's not practical for most people. It shouldn't be expected that people have to go out on their own and research how to decolonize themselves. And this is providing a real alternative to that. Yes? No? Thoughts? I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. Sure. Yeah. I mean... It's creating a, an infrastructure that's an alternative to trying to do it on your own. Right. Like... M most of... Most of these fights always start grassroots, and they wouldn't need to start grassroots. It's sort of like uh, unions. Like, they're a band-aid to the problem. If it was systemically in place where the government didn't tread on these people, then we would need to fight to, to decolonize. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'd, the thing that's really Am interesting— Am I saying that right? No, you are— but I think there's one nuance that's really important in this conversation is that everyone involved in these process in this project, um, whether it's through the school or through the researchers or the individuals going through it, are all indigenous people. Mm -hmm. They're claiming ownership of that process, and they're not only just claiming ownership of the process; they're claiming the, what that process looks like mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways, whether it's um, relearning information that's become scarce, culturally relevant information, and uh, reintegrating those relationships between mm -hmm. food and storytelling. Mm -hmm. Or in, the, in uh, the example that we just gave, it's about naming that research process and the theories used to conduct that research and what, what is important in that research. Right. It even go, it goes so deep as to label it as a way to be or sort of the mindset you need to be in to think like... Yeah, and this is done... At Anishinaabe. Yeah, and this decolonization is demonstrated as... You, you know, it's further demonstrated by the utilization of the Ojibwe language to describe certain facets of Anishinaabe knowledge and way of life. Mm -hmm. the, the goal isn't to erase the fact that English is a component of how they live, but to reinvigorate the parts that have been lost. So in this process of looking at these histories and what it looks like when indigenous people reclaim their voice, identity, and history, we can get a glimpse of what the future may hold if we can continue to move the the, no, the nozzle for What the fuck am I looking for? If we can continue to move uh, the needle forward in progress. And viewing how this destruction has taken place, we can further understand what needs to be done to come to terms with these parts of our history. And honestly, one of the biggest challenges is really around this general concept of what does it mean to decolonize? And you know, what is our role as non-Indigenous people in this conversation? 
what can we do to to make amends, this idea of reconciliation. Right. And that's one thing that this conversation sort of points out to me is um, rather than fixing yesterday's problems, I feel like the idea of decolonization starts with fixing the problems that we have today. And that comes with addressing those systemic issues um, that are still causing harm today before we can uh, start to patch up harm that was, you know, old wounds, so to speak. And further, this idea that in order for people to be made whole again, uh, requires those of us that are not impacted by these actions over history for us to essentially shut up or use our platform to help elevate these conversations and allow them to speak for themselves. And in this sense, they're really doing that. Again, I, I want to reinforce the fact that they've the Anishinaabe have essentially built their own infrastructure to re-educate their community about their cultural history and to retie those relationships with the things that are important to them. And it's not, I don't want to say it's not my job as a white person to do that, but it's its their own self-determination about what that looks like. It's not my job to tell them what that looks like. Yeah, people should have their own way of passing down their stories and their knowledge and their history. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, and they have that full infrastructure that they own. There's no white guy at the top that's like, I, I'm John Smith and I, uh, I'm not Anishinaabe, but I run the school for Anishinaabe. It's, if you look at all the people that are involved, they're, they are indigenous. It's, they're owning their decolonization, and that is crucial. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. It's a little bit different than the last few that we've done, but I think it helps tie together some of these stories. And, you know, we've looked at so much of the past, and now it's our job to start thinking about how can we tie this back into our, our reconciliation of foodways and how we grow food and these questions about permaculture and all these other subjects that I think this all ties together with. So if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes. If you really enjoyed this episode, you can also give us a tip over on Venmo or check us out on Patreon. We appreciate all the help we could get. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This is Andy. This is Elliot.